Welcome influencers. Don't you just love it? You're an influencer. You're, you're created to influence people. Amen. Well, we're continuing a short little series that, that we have for you uh, over this last couple of weeks here, just talking about identity issues. And I got uh, so much great feedback from you all, so thank you so much uh, for uh, your comments uh, in this last week of, of uh, how you enjoyed the message, and we're going to continue on today and hopefully leave you with some really concrete tools that you can use to help people who are struggling, who don't know, who are confused about their identity. As we said last week, you know, when people begin to express this, this alternate version of themselves, let's say, that's actually a really great time to take notice and to minister to people because it means that they've reached their wit's end in trying to conceal everything that has been going on in their hearts. And now they just give in and they express everything that's been going on in their heart. And you can see the, the struggle that people are under. Next, actually a great opportunity to, uh, to witness to people. Well, I just want to recap for you here for a few moments. Moments. And if you have the app, you can open up and follow along in the app and send the notes to yourself. Um, but we talked last week from Matthew chapter 4 that it is Satan's number one objective to attack people's identity. And we talked about the reason why he wants to do that is because it takes faith to believe who God says we are. So if he can continue to attack, at least uh, on the outside, and then sometimes also in our emotions, if he can continue to attack our value and in our identity, he can cause us to lose faith, which is truly one of his objectives. He does not want us to have faith because faith leads us to Jesus, and he wants to prevent us from receiving what Jesus has to offer. And so we see in the temptation of Jesus that the, the, the number one thing that Satan kept asking Jesus in the desert is, if you are the son of God, then do this. And so what we understand about, about, about Christ is that he had his identity, and his identity was based upon upon who God said he was, but what the enemy was trying to do was trying to get him to prove who he was by doing something that would demonstrate who he was. And, and Jesus literally rebuked him. So what we can understand about this is that when the enemy comes to try to destroy our identity, he does that by getting us to believe that if we do something, we can become something. And that's actually contrary to what scripture teaches. You can cannot do in order to become. You simply are. You are a being. As, as Pastor Lucas said earlier, you are who God made you to be. You are who God created you to be. And I know that there can be some confusion sometimes for people because they begin to base their identity on things that they feel, but your identity is not based on a feeling. Your identity is based on a reality. <laughs> so if you try to, to, to um, alter your identity or you begin having feelings of, of this or that, you, you're never supposed to base your identity on anything that you feel. You're supposed to base your identity on the reality of who you are. And that reality comes from who God says you are and what he has ascribed to you from the very beginning of time. So, you know, Satan wants us to enter into this humanistic works based, performance-based system where we enter into a mindset that says, unless I do something, then I can never become this. And the reason why he wants us to do that is because if we can rely on our own human effort in order to become right with God, he will wear us out. As we talked about last week, you'll literally become so distraught 
so tired, so worn down, so beat down that you'll literally give in and begin to worship his idea of who you are, which is what he wants. He wants people to relinquish what God says about them in order to embrace what he wants to do with them, which is to destroy your life. We know that the word says that the enemy comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That is his only mode of operation is to steal, kill, and destroy people. And so when you see people's lives uh, going into the tank and he begins to steal from them who they are, he can begin to destroy who they are and that's what his goal is. God obviously is the opposite of that. So when we, when we recognize that this, this works-based system that is prevalent in the world, which is what the enemy wants us to continue to enter into and to remain in so he can wear us down, we can understand that the whole movement that we see with this identity crisis that people are experiencing is actually religious in nature. It has a religious undertone to it. There's a spiritual reality of what's happening that is causing people to, to express themselves in these outbursts of people that they really are not. And that's why it's so important for us to address these things from a spiritual standpoint, right? We have to fight with the same kind of weapons. And we know, as we mentioned last week, this is not a battle against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities in the air, right? This is a spiritual battle. We have to see it from that vantage point and we have to fight with spiritual weapons, which is the word of God, right? That is our spiritual weapon where we fight and we cut back the lies of the enemy and we demolish every stronghold and everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God with the word of God. That's how we fight this. So we have this humanistic works-based mentality that Satan wants us to continue in And uh, we notice from uh, Philippians chapter three that one of the things that you see as an expression of this religious uh, ideology is seen in what the Pharisees were basically forcing these new converts to Christianity to do. And Paul's actually addressing this in the early church and what they were trying to do is they were trying to get people to continue on with the circumcision. And you all know what circumcision is and if you're a young person, you can talk to your parents about what that is. But there was a tradition of circumcision that if you were a Jew, you would become circumcised in order to prove that you were part of that heritage, part of that culture, part of that religion, part of that identity. And it was a huge part of your identity. So when Christ came and he redeemed us from the curse of the law, which was you have to do this in order to be accepted by God. These are the parameters. Christ came and fulfilled the law. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. There was no longer a requirement to perform certain acts in order to be part of the body of Christ. And this was a challenge to the religious leaders of that day because it pretty much cut down from the foundation everything that they had established their entire religion on, which was a a works-based system where there was a hierarchy of authority and people who were at the top were the most spiritual. They were the ones who were exacting all of the rules on the people, arbitrary rules. You have to do this in order to be accepted. And they made people toe such a fine line to to be accepted by God that it was very hard for people to experience the benefit of being even part of that culture, part of that community. And so when Christ came and turned that whole, whole system on its head by saying, I am the fulfillment of the law, and now the law was fulfilled, that they did not have to live under the requirements of the law in order to maintain their righteousness, 
they, they, were, they were beginning to challenge Paul and this doctrine. And to this day, Jews will challenge Paul and, and, and Christianity by saying that, no, we still must adhere to the works of the law in order to receive our righteousness from God. And one of the things that they were criticizing um, Paul for doing is not, not requiring his disciples to be circumcised, the ones who were Gentiles, the ones who were basically grafted in now to this new religion that was based upon Judaism, but it was, it was different. It was something new that people had never really experienced. And Paul's criticism to them was very clear. He said to watch out for those dogs, those evil doers, those mutilators of the flesh. And this is how we can understand the, the crisis that is happening today, especially within this whole transgender movement, that it's a crisis of, of a religious bondage uh, and not just a Christian. This has nothing to do with Christianity. This has to do with a religious bondage that is a, relig- a pagan religion of the world that is trying to persuade people that in order to be accepted, you must adhere to these guidelines and these principles, and then you will feel good about yourself. And obviously we're hearing from thousands and thousands and thousands of people all over the the country and all over the world who are experiencing regret after they do this because it's literally nothing that can be turned back. You cannot turn any of these things back. So this is the enemy's tactic. This is these are his ploys. This is how he operates. And so we're going to continue to push this this ideology back. Another thing we mentioned last week is that man is binary. There's only two kinds of people that you can be. And I'm not just talking about man and woman, although that is true. You can only be a man. You can only be a woman. But spiritually speaking, you can only be found in Christ or not found in Christ. There's only two spiritual perspectives that any person can have. And that is either that you are in Jesus or you are not in Jesus Christ. That's it. That is God's perspective about us. And he sees things very clearly. He's not confused about your identity whatsoever. He's not confused one bit because he sees with spiritual understanding and he knows whether or not you have been found in Christ or whether or not you have not been found in Christ. And the way that we are found in Christ, of course, is by giving our lives to Jesus Christ, by submitting to him wholeheartedly. And when we give our life to him and we submit to him with all that we have, the Bible teaches us that we are born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed, meaning something that cannot ever die or fade away. That's what it means to be born again. So your spirit comes alive inside you. You are married with Jesus Christ and forever you have something on the inside of you that cannot fade away. That is how we define who we are. That is how we should be defining what our identity is. But because people have not been taught any of these things, not even in churches, not even in churches are they teaching about people's true identity these days. Like people just don't know. And so they're suffering and we're going to help them. So we know in John chapter three, um, and we're going to lead into uh, this next portion of, of, the, of the, this concept of our identity. If you go to John chapter three in verse 19, and I believe this is also in your app that was missing last week, but I think it's here now. So in John chapter three, Verse 19, now this is after uh, the writer here has proclaimed to us that in order to be saved, we must be born again, that Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. That is the reason why Jesus came, is to save people from themselves. And it says in verse 19, he says, this is the verdict. 
So there is a verdict that has been handed out from the throne of God about the, the relationship that mankind has between themselves and his son. There is one verdict. And he said, here it is. This is, this is God's perspective. This is how he decides the case that we bring before him about who are we? He said, this is it. This is the verdict. He says, light has come into the world. Who is that light? That's Jesus. He's the illuminator. He brings light to situations. And he says, light has come into the world to explain this to people, to be, to be uh, uh, very clear about God's perspective on man's issue of sin. He says, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So the problem that, that, that people have with Jesus is not that he was a nice person or that he treated people nice or that he was friendly. The problem people have with Jesus is he exposes our evil deeds. And because we love our evil deeds and we don't want to be exposed, we push Jesus away from us. And that's what the world does. They, they want to keep Jesus as far out of their minds and out of their lives as they possibly can so that they never have to deal with the wickedness of their heart or their evil deeds because they love their evil deeds, which is sad. It's sad that people would love their evil, evil deeds. And he said, and they don't want those things to be exposed, okay? So this is why I say, when, when people come out, that's actually a great opportunity to, to witness to them if you can get them within those early days of, of basically coming out because for so long, they've not wanted to step into the light of being exposed because they didn't want their evil deeds to be exposed. But when Satan wears them down so far that they think that there's no other hope, there's no other alternative, there's no other way to live and they come out, they're actually allowing their evil deeds to be exposed for the first time and you can minister to somebody in that moment. You can actually share the gospel with them. You can ask them questions about how did they come to this conclusion? What made you think that you were like this? What happened in your childhood? Are your parents divorced or are they still together? I mean, there's a million things that you could basically uncover when someone comes out that would actually give you insight into how to minister to them. And you might have an opportunity to share something in that very short window of time. And I say it's short because at some point in time, according to Romans, what we understand is that God will basically basically let go of people who are standing in rebellion. If they stand in rebellion for long enough and are not willing to accept who he says he is and accept him, he will let go. That is a very dangerous place for people to be in because the Bible says that no one can come to the Father unless God leads them, unless Jesus is leading them. So when Jesus lets them go of their, uh, into, their, into their total wickedness and depravity, that's a very dangerous place. So take the advantage of opportunities when you hear this happening in your family, in your, with your friends, with your coworkers. And it's kind of like everybody knows, right, that someone's struggling. Why don't we reach out to people when we know that they're struggling? You already know. You can already sense it. The Holy Spirit is already telling you. So why not engage someone instead of allowing them to continue to suffer? Like we need to be bold. We need to stand, stand and help people instead of shrinking back because we're afraid we're going to offend somebody. They, people are hurting. They're desperate. And they want to know that there's an answer. And I'll show you at the end here how you can continue to uh, get guidance from the Holy Spirit and how to help people. 
So it says that everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly what they have done has been done in the sight of God. What that means is, is that when people love truth, they want to come into the light because what that does is it actually brings glory to God. It actually glorifies God because when you come into the light, and you acknowledge that I have nothing good going for me. There's nothing that I have in my own life or in my own self that's righteous. I am a sinner that is saved by God's grace. That brings glory to him, and you can boast in that. This is what Paul said. He says, I can boast in God. I can boast in Jesus Christ because it's not about me. It's about him. So this is how you know when people are, are struggling versus people who are confident in who they are is because if you're confident in who you are, you come into the light and you allow Jesus to mold you and to continue to speak into you. So I want to talk next about what what love does, because all of this is a byproduct of how we actually interact with God's love. So we know that God's love is constant. And you can think about God's love in much the same way that you can maybe think about a prism. And so thank you for the production team for putting this beautiful picture up here. Love is like a prism. And it's really the light that shines into your heart. And your heart is really the prism. But what happens as we, yeah, that's, that's okay. So what, what happens in our heart is that you have the love of God that is shining into the prism of our heart. And what a prism does is it refracts the light. It literally separates the rays of the light so you can see something that you had previously not been able to perceive about this light. So the prism of our heart and the state and the condition of our heart will determine what effect love has on us us. And isn't it ironic that the whole transgender movement is this symbol right here? Isn't it so ironic? I mean, you can, this is how you know this is spiritual, you guys. This is totally spiritual, 100%. Everything about it is spiritual in nature. It's not anything to do with this physical realm whatsoever. And so this is how we can actually help people because we discern that, we know that, but they don't even know. So this is how we help people. Okay, so the love of God shines into the prism of our heart and the condition of our heart will determine what the output is, what, what love does on the other side. So so let's look at the, um, the other example that I have in this PowerPoint here. Now, um, we're going to move in one second. I want to show you something, but first go to Proverbs chapter 11, verse 20. And you guys don't have to switch there, but they can go in their app. So go to Proverbs 11, verse 20. The Bible teaches us that, that, that people, some people, have what's called a crooked heart, in Proverbs 11.20, it says, those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. Those of a crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. Why are those with a crooked heart an abomination to the Lord? Because I'm gonna show you here in a second, every time the light shines into a crooked heart, what comes out on the other side is an abomination. It's not what God intended. So when you have a crooked heart, it means that there is a darkness in your heart that is preventing the love of God from producing in your life what it was intended to produce. So let's go to, let's click to the next wing. So you have a heart, that's the prism. God's light is shining into it. Go ahead, next. 
but darkness is covering the heart, okay? There is a crookedness in the heart, meaning that there are, there's understanding that's missing. There's, there could be spiritual darkening. So this is a little challenging because in the heart, there's emotions and the spirit, but the, a lot of times these two things go hand in hand, but there's a spiritual darkening in the heart. So whenever there's a spiritual darkening in someone's heart, they're not awakened to the love of God. When, when love actually hits that heart, here's what it produces. It actually produces condemnation. It's what we just read about. When love shines through a heart that is darkened, immediately it produces condemnation. Why? Because someone's evil, wicked deeds of the heart are now exposed for the first time and you feel condemned. And this is why it's important to understand how these things work because you can help discern where people are at on this journey of confusion because it's a total journey of confusion. They don't get there overnight, you guys. It's not just one day they wake up and they say, oh, I'm a woman. No, this is happening over a series of days and weeks and months and years. And if you can recognize where people are at in this process, you have the ability to break that cycle, break that that pathway that they're on and get them into trouble truth. So when heart is darkened and the love of God shines into someone's heart, it produces condemnation. And that condemnation in turn produces, you could go to the next thing. Okay. It's basically now going to express itself into a variety of different outputs. Okay. So God's love is trying to reach someone you're, you're condemned in your heart because of your evil deeds. You're not born again. And now the expression of that in general, you can go to the next one. The expression of that, keep going, is in anger. Okay. How many of you have seen a lot of angry people out there? Isn't it ironic that the, the, this, this, this tolerant group of people are so angry? I mean, the irony of that is just astounding. If you're so tolerant and you're so loving of everyone, why are you so angry with Christians? Because they hate Jesus Christ because he brings light to things. He exposes people's wicked, evil deeds. So they're really, they're really not tolerant. They're totally intolerant, but they want people to think that they're tolerant because there's a status quo of what this religious group of people thinks. And so they have to project that they're tolerant, but you can see in everything that they do, not only this condemnation, but this anger, but what this anger produces. This anger actually produces a, a desire to try to fill the void to fill this frustration that they feel for being condemned with what the Bible teaches in Ephesians, which you can go on next, are the works or the lust of the flesh. So you can hit the next one if it's going. So look with me at uh, Galatians, excuse me, Galatians. So love through the prism of a crooked heart produces condemnation. Condemnation in turn makes people feel angry. They're angry that their evil, wicked deeds are being exposed and they feel unloved. Okay. So it also expresses feelings of being unloved and feeling unloved causes people to become frustrated and angry, which results in them indulging even more in what the Bible teaches are the works of the flesh. And now notice what the very first work of the flesh is. Can you believe it? In Galatians 5, verse 9. Now the works of the flesh are evident. What is number one? Sexual immorality. Go figure. I mean, you couldn't even make this stuff up if you tried. It's so obvious. 
It's just so obvious. The very first work of the flesh that is mentioned that happens as a result of people feeling condemned, becoming angry, and therefore indulging even more in the works of the flesh to try to numb the feelings that they're having in their heart, to try to quiet the condemnation, to try to uh, make themselves feel better. They're trying to fill a void that only God can fill, and they do it by indulging even more in the works of the flesh. And the first one listed there is sexual immorality. And this is why, you know, the sexual revolution has created such a problem in our country and a problem for people. I mean, that was really, you know, I would say the start of it. It's so sad, but that was the first expression that people were really unwilling to receive the light of the gospel in their heart. And so they're expressing it first and foremost through rebelling sexually. Sad. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. We've seen that a lot. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So notice that Paul doesn't even just, uh, I mean, he, even though he ends a list of what he might have you know, considered the obvious, straightforward ones, it doesn't really end there because we know that people invent ways to do evil, They continue to invent and make up ways to do evil. And we see that. I mean, some of this stuff you're thinking, I could have never imagined that it would get this bad. They're just inventing new ways to get evil. So he says things like this. And he says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They won't. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not because of their behavior, but it's because of what their behavior is actually pointing back to, and that is the fact that their spiritual hearts are darkened. That is why they don't inherit the kingdom of God, because we all know that we were sinners, and God saved us. We were all participating in the things of the world and the things of the flesh, and God saved us. So it's not the behavior that causes us not to inherit the kingdom of God. It's the fact that we don't find a solution for the darkness of our heart. You know, when people never receive the love that God is trying to communicate to them in their heart, they continue on that path, and that path creates destruction in people's lives. So when we don't feel like we are the object of God's affection, we, we're in conflict with God in our spirit. And this is what we're seeing today. There are just, just millions and millions of people who are in conflict with God in their spirit because they're not, they're not receiving that love of God. They don't experience it. And in fact, it makes them even angrier to the point where they continue to indulge in the works of the flesh. But the flip side of that is, is true. So notice what happens when love shines through the heart that is born again. So when, the, when a heart is born again and it has received the light of the gospel, we've stepped into the light, so to speak. We've become woke to the light of Jesus. What happens is a, a love that shines into a heart that's been born again actually produces a heart that continues to grow in the love of God because that heart is experiencing humility, right? That's what, that's what love does to a heart that is receptive to God is it produces humility and keep going. You can just go ahead and fl- uh, flash forward through there. It produces humility, which leads to gratefulness. When love shines through a heart that has been born again, it produces humility, humility. 
You have this magnificent, magnificent understanding of what God has done in your life. And because of that humility of recognizing that he is greater than I am, what John said, that he must increase and I must decrease, this humility creates gratefulness. You actually become thankful to God. You become so, so um, softened. Your heart does not wax gross. Instead, your heart becomes softened to the love of God. And guess what that produces? That produces the fruit of the Spirit, which is basically the opposite of the works of the flesh or the, the, the works of evil. It produces the fruit of the Spirit. And notice what the very first fruit of the Spirit is, love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So love shining through a heart that is born again produces humility. That humility leads to gratefulness and that gratefulness produces more love. (laughs) This is why the Bible teaches that, that Christians will be known by their love. And so we have to be very mindful of that. If Christians are known by their condemnation and judgmental attitudes and bitterness and angry towards other people, that's not really what Christ showed. He was able to love people in spite of their sinful nature and sinful state. So if, if you have to ask yourself the question, seriously, is love producing more love in my life or is love producing bitterness, rivalries, anger in my life? Because if you're a Christian and love is producing anger and rivalries and bitterness in your life, do you know what that tells me? Not that you're not born again, but that you have areas in your heart that God's love, you will not let God's love reach into. Because if you were allowing his love to reach into that area, you would only have love on the other side because love produces more love. So we have to challenge ourselves as believers because if we look exactly like the world looks, when love comes into our heart and it produces the same effect as it does in people in the world, then we're doing something really wrong. So as Christians, when love hits our heart, it should cause us to become humble. It should cause us to become more thankful and it would lead to more spiritual growth, which is producing more and more love in our lives for people. Now notice in uh, Philippians chapter one, verses nine through 11, So Paul prays that this love would abound more and more in people's lives. And he says, I pray that your love, and I'm reading this out of the Amplified, I pray that your love may abound more and more, displaying itself in greater depth, in real knowledge and in practical insight so that you may learn to recognize and treasure what is excellent. And notice what love does. Identifying the best and distinguishing moral differences. This is what love does in people's hearts. It helps people identify the best and also simultaneously to distinguish between moral differences. It actually gives you discernment on issues of morality. It says that you may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. And now notice what love produces actually living lives that lead others away from sin. Love should be so prevalent in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit should be so obvious in our lives that what it does is it actually leads others away from sin. 
It leads them into a journey to, to put sinful things behind and to embrace more of the Spirit of God. That's what love produces. And he says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God so that his glory may be revealed and recognized. Now, goes on in uh, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. He says, do everything without murmuring or questioning the providence of God. Do everything without murmuring or questioning the providence of God. Literally what he's saying is, don't question the goodness of God, the providence of God, that he is for you, that he is on your side, that he loves you. He says, do things without questioning the providence or goodness of God so that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and guileless. Guileless means without deception. So let me pause here for just a moment. When you're thinking about, you know, what is my attitude towards people that I disagree with? Here's how you can know what your attitude is. If your attitude towards people who you disagree with is, I really, really want them to change. I really, really want them to be different so that I won't have to be mad at them anymore. (laughs) Then that tells you that your attitude is not right. If your attitude is, they need to change so that I don't have to be mad anymore, then that's the wrong attitude of the heart. That's not the right perspective. But if your attitude is, I want them to change because it'd be the best thing for their entire life to experience the love of God in the way that I have, I can't wait for them to go on that journey. That's when you know that your attitude is right and that your desire for them to change is not based upon your own selfish motivations, but is actually based on loving them and what's best for them leading people away from sin without deception. And that's really the problem that people have today is that they feel still after all these years that, that Christians are deceptive, they're hypocrites, that they're trying to get you to do something. They're trying to get you to behave and act in a certain way. And then all of a sudden, it'll be revealed what their true motives and true intentions were. Why not start with what your true motives and intentions are? Why do you have to hide it? I want you to experience the best that God has for you. I want you to experience freedom from sin. I want you to experience the kind of love that has just absolutely radically changed my life. I want you to experience that. Be straightforward with people. Don't just hide your intentions and try to manipulate people into changing because that is obvious. And if all you're trying to do is manipulate people into coming to church or being a good person, then you're really misunderstanding how this all works. And that's what we want to try to equip you in, is to really share with the love of God in a way that is transformational, not just superficial. Because when God's love actually comes in and change someone's, changes someone's life, it's a total transformation. I mean, it's, it's, it's greater than the biggest you know, HGTV show you could ever find. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's totally transformational. It's not just cleaning things up and putting a patch on it and making it look good on the outside. It's radically transformational in heart because you're no longer bound by sin. So he says, do things without deception, innocent, uncontaminated, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a morally crooked and spiritually perverted generation. Now, it says that if we act like this, without deception, blameless. We live our lives as blameless in the midst of a morally crooked and spiritually perverted generation. Notice how we will be perceived. It says, among whom you are seen as bright lights. 
You cannot be a bright light in someone else's life, someone who's struggling in sin, if your own life is absolutely wrecked. It's really hard to do that. Now, there's no condemnation for you, but as a Christian, there is a way to live above that. And even though you've suffered from negative circumstances and things that have happened in your life, if you live without blemish, without deception, without blame, that's the goal of your life, then it says that you shine as bright lights, beacon of light that shines out clearly in a world of darkness. This is why it's so important to, to, to really not just look the part, but to be the part and vice versa. Like if we're really Christians and if the gospel is really true and if it really works, then it should work in every area of my life. It should work in my relationships. It should work in my workplace. It should work in my finances. It should work in my kids. It should work everywhere I go if the gospel is really true. Because I want to be an example of that. I want to be an example of what the gospel can do in, pe- in people's lives. And when you live like that, you shine as a bright light in a world of total darkness where people are in chaos and they cannot understand how to get out of the mess that they're in. And it says that what we do then is we hold out and offer to everyone the word of life. Now, Notice that it says, it doesn't say that we shove the truth down people's throats and until they get it, we continue to badger them. No, it says that we hold out and offer. This is what it means to present an offering, to hold someone, something out for someone. We are not trying to bash it over people's heads. We're not trying to force it down people. We are holding out the truth. We are offering them the truth in a way that, in, that, that you know, it, physically speaking, can look maybe a little bit defenseless, okay? Because I, if I've got both of my hands holding out and offering the word of truth, how can I really defend myself as someone tries to attack me or to take it from me or whatever? I can't. Because I am positioning myself with a heart of humility, with a heart of love, a heart of gratitude that God has shared with me. And I am saying, you have an opportunity to partake in the word of life and I'm holding it out for you. Will you partake? Do you want this? You see, with that attitude of heart, people will, will, will want to know more. But right now, we have had some negative things that have been happening. The attitude of many Christians' heart has not been one of holding out the word of life. And so we have to, we have to check that in ourselves. And we have to check those motivations. So I want to give you a four-step process, a little acronym to help us to become equipped in how do we lead people to Jesus? How do we lead people to Jesus? Because this is really what it's all about. If we're not actively working on leading people to Christ, then we're really not doing what Jesus commissioned us to do. So what does it mean to lead people to Jesus? Number one, L stands for listen. We have to learn how to listen. The first person that you have to learn how to listen to is Jesus. You have to learn how to listen. And there, there's an interesting connection in, in the original language between the word listen and obey. Those two words actually go hand in hand. They're linked together, which means that if you really do hear, you will obey, which means if you're not obeying, you're not really listening You're not really hearing what he has to say. It's not really pricking your heart to the point where you're willing to submit to it. You're tuning that part out. 
I'm willing to go so far with you, Jesus. I'm willing to do all of these things, but that one right there that you're talking to me about, not so much. Don't talk to me about that one, but everything else I'm okay with. See, listening, first and foremost, comes for ourselves. The purpose of listening is first and foremost to discipline ourselves to walk in the truth of the word. And so when God is speaking, if you're trying to persuade somebody to come to Jesus Christ, but you yourself are not listening to what he's telling you to do, it's not a very strong argument for why someone should come to Jesus. You're not even living that way. This is why people would criticize Christians for being hypocrites because you're telling me that I have to get my life right over here and then look at your life over there. So listening first and foremost is for us. Second of all, listening when we have mastered the art, if we ever can, of listening and obeying. Second of all, listening has to do with listening to the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit wants to operate in your life in power. One of the main things that Paul said when he came into the church is he said, I did not come to you with eloquence of speech, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on what man can do, but in God alone. We think that we're gonna persuade people with wise sounding words, with good arguments, having the right thing to say. And Paul said, I didn't even attempt to come to you with wise and persuasive words. I only came to you with the Spirit's power. When you listen to the Holy Spirit in your relationships with people, what he does is he downloads to you a spiritual gift that you can use to demonstrate the power of the Spirit and the, the fact that God is real and he's hearing their prayers, he's hearing the cries of their heart and he wants to do something about it. And he's going to do it right now. We have to learn to listen. Number two, we have to learn to activate. Excuse me, I'm sorry. We need to learn to evangelize, E, lead. We have to learn to evangelize. What does it mean to evangelize? Paul tells us in Ephesians that evangelism is about being fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. If you as a Christian do not understand what, we even, what it even means when we say the gospel of peace, then there's more to learn. But Paul says that, that a clear foundational part of evangelism is that your feet are ready with the gospel of peace, which means that wherever you go, you, do, you bring peace. You bring the peace of God to people, that God is no longer counting men's sins against them, that Jesus Christ died to redeem them from the curse, that what he imparts unto them is a free gift of righteousness. That's peace. And that when your feet are equipped with the gospel of peace, this is how we evangelize people. I believe in this day and age, the church has to come back to evangelism. We have to begin speaking out, not with the messages that we've used in the past, but with a new, fresh message of who Jesus is and how he can save them from the problems that they're experiencing. So we listen, we evangelize, and the third is we activate. What do I mean when I say activate? You have to help people activate their faith by giving them an assignment to trust God. I'll say it again. You have to give people an opportunity, an assignment to activate their faith by trusting God. Most people have never been given an opportunity to trust God. And so what you do when you activate their faith is you say, have you ever prayed about that before? Because I bet if you were to pray about that, God will give you an answer. Have you ever trusted God? Do you believe that he could deliver you from this? You're giving them an assignment. You're telling them to do something that causes them to trust in God. And guess what the good news is? God is faithful. 
So whenever you give them an assignment to trust God more in their life, guess what? He delivers because he's faithful. He's not gonna leave people hanging. He's not gonna leave people high and dry. So you give them an assignment, you activate their faith and you express to them, trust God in this area and come back to me and tell me what happens. And you would not believe the number of times that people will come back and say, you're never gonna believe this. Well, yes, I will actually, because I gave you that assignment because I knew he'd fulfill it for you because that's the God we serve. So we activate their faith. We show them that God has the ability to show up on their behalf. And finally, we disciple, we disciple. What does that mean? It means according to Christ, he says that we teach people to obey everything that he has commanded. And so that's a little bit, that's a little bit wordy. So how is it that you actually teach someone how to obey everything that he has commanded? The only way to do that successfully is to partner with people in walking with them in this spiritual journey. You have to walk hand in hand with people. You have to spend a lot of time with people. When they come up with, with situations and circumstances that happen in in their life and they don't know what to do, you teach them how to obey Jesus. It means that everything that you do in your life and that you've done in your life up until this point to trust God, to follow God, to serve God, to be in relationship with God, you actually have to actively teach people how to do it. They don't know how. They've never seen it modeled and demonstrated for them before. They don't come from families that have been families of faith for generations and generations. They've come from poverty. They come from lack. They come from abuse. They come from broken homes. They've never seen anyone in their whole life model what it means to walk with Christ. You have the opportunity to do that. You can lead people by listening to the Holy Spirit, evangelizing people, activating their faith, and discipling people. And this is how we can bring a generation of people to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we just thank you. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your word is so powerful. It's so full of life. It's so practical, Jesus. In this day and age where we've been so confused and we've not known, how do I even know what to say? How do I even know what to do? We thank you, Lord, that your word addresses everything, everything that this world could ever throw at us. In your word, you have made a way, you've explained it, you've given us clear instructions on how to push back the work of the enemy and to change our culture, Father, and so we want to be those bright lights shining in our culture, making a difference for people, Lord. We thank you that we have the Holy Spirit on the inside of us that empowers us, that equips us, that leads us into paths of righteousness for the sake of your name. God, right now, I just pray that if anyone be here and they're struggling, either here, online, wherever they may be, in wanting to know, is this who you really made me to be, Father? I pray that you would answer that question for them right now in Jesus' name, that you would begin to show them that you made them for a, a purpose, a very special purpose, that you did not make a mistake in them. If they're a boy, they're a boy. If they're a girl, they're a girl. There's no confusion on your side, Lord, but you are calling them to make a singular choice to be counted in you, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I thank you for your word that continues to change lives, that your word is very powerful. It's very effective. It always goes out and accomplishes the purpose for which it is sent. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. Awesome, awesome. Let's give her a hand. Powerful, powerful.
Well, we're going to have an uh, opportunity for ministry time here at the end if you want to come up and, and pray with our team. But uh, um, before, we, before we get to that, I just want to invite Cody back up here as promised. And uh, I'm going to ask um, uh, Steve and David if you would join me as well uh, as elders here. And, and uh, also, uh, Cody, you got some family here. You guys want to come up and, and pray with us here? We're just going to lay hands on this guy. And come on up and, and tell, us, uh, uh, tell us a little bit about kind of what, where, what the next maybe few months look like for you. Um, next couple of weeks, uh, the International House of Prayer, they're doing a global fast for Israel, so we're going to take part in that, which I'm excited about. Um, that's in Kansas City, yep. And then um, after that, I'm going to go back to Washington, D.C., um, where I had been for about four months prior to coming here um, with David's tent, and they're a 24-7 um, house of prayer and worship uh, on the mall. So I'm going to go back there and uh, invest in what we do that primarily, yeah, we just keep watch, just ministering to the Lord, which when he obviously ministers back to us, but that was, that's neat, you know, playing for him. And then, you know, we do street evangelism and uh, things like that as well. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we've been so blessed having you here and uh, just, you know, Chrissy and I and Jamie and Jamie, why don't you come on up here and Chrissy, if you want to join us as well, we're just going to, we're going to pray for Cody here. Let's just lay hands and father, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. I just thank you for this man, Lord, that you've brought to us, Lord. And I pray that, um, uh, that, that, you would, that we would just send him out today with a blessing. And Lord, I thank you for those who uh, um, just have already planted just such great word in his life, Lord, and just the, the call that's on the inside of him, Lord, just the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the heart for just this generation. And Lord, I pray that uh, his time would just be fruitful, Lord, that it would be an establishing in his heart of really who he is, what you've called him to do, Lord, that you give him vision and dreams, Lord, of, of what's next and where he's to go, Father. And I just thank you that he's embodying this, that, uh, that anyone who is, has the Spirit is just kind of operates like the wind, Lord, that as he blows uh, through this nation, Lord, that you would just take him and just be a voice in people's lives. Lord, we just thank you so much for just the blessing that he's been to us here at this ministry. And Lord, we look forward to being reunited with him again in the future uh, in whatever way that is that you have in mind, Father. And we just pray just safety over him, protection, uh, Lord, that every place, every nation, every city, every state that he sets his foot in, Lord, that, that he would just, uh, um, just you know, not go alone, Lord, but you'd be his front and rear guard, Lord, that you'd just uh, protect him every single step of the way. We love you, Lord. We love you. We thank you for Cody. And we send him out right now with a blessing with just, uh, 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 just being ordained for this time and this moment. We thank you, Father. It's in your name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Appreciate you, brother. Thanks for everything. Awesome. Awesome. What a great Sunday. Well, we love you. God loves you. And if you haven't figured out that yet, then, you know, stick around. We'd love to invite you for that. And if you have figured it out, stick around too. So we like celebrating that with you. Uh, we love you so much, guys. Also, I forgot to announce this one last thing is that uh, I know there's some people that you're not able to go uh, this coming Saturday to help with the move, but you'd still like to help in some way. Um, there's going to be a team at the Connections Desk that can get you some info on that and get you signed up for meeting the team here when they come back with the trucks to help un unload them on this end so you don't necessarily have to make the drive out there. So uh, see them at the Connections Desk. We love you guys. If you need prayer for something, see one of our ministry team. We love you. We'll see you soon. Thanks.